With a robust economy and low inflation, markets and economics are in a complicated era. WealthVest presents the Weekly Bull and Bear, a podcast dedicated to bringing financial professionals the most up-to-date weekly analysis of the trends and developments occurring in capital markets both here and around the world. Listen in as we analyze these developments and shine a light on the events that matter to us. Good afternoon, everybody. This is Drew Dockin. We're into our fourth Bull and Bear podcast. And this week, I'd like to kind of start with looking a little bit at the Treasury yields. Uh, you know, U.S. government yields rose on Friday, but they were headed for some weekly losses last week. A uh, bit of that seems to be primarily because of comments New York Fed President John Williams made. Um, but yeah, Tim, let's let's kind of talk about what happened overall in terms of you know Treasury yields and the stock market last week. Yeah, you know the job, and, and my job is not a market economist, but the job of a market economist nowadays is to just listen to Fed speak and parse every word. And each and every word has its own special meaning, uh, each special meaning, and and you know people can read those tea leaves to mean 25 bips or 50 bips. Um, it sounds like, you know, some of the Fed speakers got a little aggressive last week and then kind of backed off of that. Um, I don't particularly think that any of them care about the jawboning from the president. I think they're trying to get it right. I think they're trying to fulfill their dual mandate uh, of uh, low inflation and maximum employment. And right now they're getting it. So I don't think that any of them uh, are particularly worried about the president. I think the bigger issue is if you do see people like uh, Stephen Moore, you know, who I know has withdrawn, but as you see highly political people move into the Fed, I think that's when you kind of start to worry a little bit. Either way, if, if you haven't heard me speak before, you don't know that I say the same thing uh, always about the Fed, about central banks, that while I'm not somebody who I'm not an Austrian economist or some of, some of these people who think Fed should be, uh, we should get rid of central banks or get rid of the Fed and go to a gold standard or anything crazy like that. But I do think that our faith in uh, the Fed has never been higher, and our faith in central banks has never been higher. I would call it almost a bubble uh, in terms of the belief that people can that that the Fed officials, with interest rates where they are, uh, really can do that much uh, to improve the economy at this point. Uh, look, economic cycles happen. They need to happen. Uh, if you believe in capitalism, you can't, you can't not believe in the necessity of economic cycles. Uh, we've been in a great cycle for a long time. Uh, I think it's very, very clear we're starting to slow, whether it's a recession or a third mid-cycle slowdown in this whole cycle, the last one being in 16, uh, is still unclear. The Fed will probably go 25 bips next week. Um, there's a smaller percentage chance that there'll be 50 bips, but I think that, you know, they jawbone this thing about right to where there's rarely ever a surprise, and I'm sure the language will keep it open to more cutting. The only thing, uh, the only thing I would say is I had an interesting conversation over the weekend. A buddy of mine, very smart guy, went to college together. He owns his own business, has done well. He said, I said, well, the economy's starting to slow a little bit. And he said, yeah, but the Fed's going to cut rates here, so doesn't that mean we're going to accelerate? Doesn't that mean that, like, mortgage rates will go down? Um, and I just I, – I think that you have a, sophisticated, a relatively sophisticated guy, a guy who's been a successful businessman who doesn't understand, actually, that the Fed doesn't control where the 10-year is and where the 30-year mortgage is, uh, and that things get discounted before they actually happen. So 
it, it, to me, it seems really pervasive. This faith, faith that we have in the Fed isn't just on Wall Street, but it's gotten down to Main Street as well. Anyway, what are your thoughts on that, Drew? No, I think that's right. I mean, there has always been to seem a big disconnect between, you know, what the overnight lending rates are, um, the scope of the Fed in general. And at the same time, like you said, people feel pretty good. Uh, we see a lot of that in what I think was University of Michigan's Consumer Sentiment Survey. Uh, recently went up to 98.4 this month, which was, you know, up from June, and this represents a near 15-year peak high. So I think people um, clearly maybe overestimate the role that central banks can pose in long-term um, economic growth and and I think I think we're seeing some of that. Yeah, I mean, look, overall, current state of the consumer is pretty good. I mean, very good. The unemployment is incredibly low. Uh, you look across demographics or any way you want to cut it, uh, unemployment is good. You are finally getting at least a little bit of wage growth uh, in the economy. So, so that's good. That's also generally what it looks like when you get to an end of a cycle. Um, and I do think you are starting to see some cracks uh, in the consumer in terms of uh, I always talk about debt service ratios moving higher. Debt service ratios look a hell of a lot higher, too, if you look at the median and you remove the top 5% of the economy. Debt service ratios look a hell of a lot more like they looked as you approached 08. Now, it's a little different. Uh, in that, you know, it's rent versus mortgages and so forth. So I am not, I do not believe we're ever, we're going to see anything near term, and I mean the next few years, like 08. But I do think that there are some cracks in the consumer, and we're just getting super late in the tooth. With debt service higher, you see weakness in autos coming, you know, um, you, you see weakness in durable goods, um, you see some weakness in temp employment, the overall rate of employment growth uh, is slowing. If you look at averages over the non-farm payrolls, the households, or the um, or the ADP, uh, so it's good. But I still think the forward-looking numbers aren't great and are slowing. Yeah, I guess another thing I'll mention is that you know when we look at yields. Um, both dividend and 10-year treasury. Now, as low as 10-year treasury yields are, it seems that uh, I think it's like 233 companies right now out of the S&P 500 have a higher yield. Um, which, and when we look at you know dividend payout ratios, they're they're lower than you know most times they have been an average. So I think yeah. there is this big rush to fixed income, and it'd be weird, or it'd be I should say curious to see that after years of Dividends declined for um, a variety of issues. You know, investors might be a little bit more attractive that to you know generate some fixed income. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, bonds are expensive. It's hard to argue that where they are right now, bonds aren't expensive, and yet uh, you're not getting a big yield on the S and P. Now, I think that is a little understated, as we talked about a lot. Uh, corporates really prefer buybacks over dividend yields right now and are providing a lot of return of capital through buybacks. I think that's one of the big reasons why the market, these equity markets have been as strong as they've been. It's also a reason why if you're going to get a pullback, it's more likely to come in the next few weeks while we're in that buyback window. Uh, so m many of the companies in the S&P 500, while they're in 
uh, they're, while they're between the end of their quarter and when they report, can't be buying back stock. Um, so uh, they're in their, 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 the window is closed, as they say, and that just takes out uh, a meaningful underlying bid to this market to where if we do get something scary on the advanced GDP uh, or the Fed disappoints, uh, you could hit a little bit of an air pocket in here. Yeah, uh, I, I guess we should move. Um, let's talk a little bit about the debt ceiling because uh, we talk about big catalysts that may change the market. And over the last few years, we've seen um, government shutdowns. I don't think it's going to happen this year um, or at least in the near term. I mean, last week, there seemed to be quite a bit more argument between you know Pelosi and, and the president in terms of, uh, you know, what what we were going to spend on and what was going to be offset. Uh, but this year, it looks like we might be ending budget sequester and we might be good for the near term. I'd like, if we could talk a little bit about, one, what, what, what is the, the debt ceiling to me seems like, I don't know if you ever watched that show Lost, but, you know, you're just pushing a button <laughs> over and over and over. So, uh, And no one knows why. I've always thought that was kind of the case with the debt ceiling. Um, so I'd like to talk about that a little bit, but I'd also like to see um, kind of what your thoughts are on, you know, the short-term issues associated with uh, the government, you know, the government being shut yeah. down. Yeah. Look, if we did have a government shutdown, it would be a negative. It would be a negative for the economy. It just creates um, a lot of indecision. Uh, look, the government is, you know, total federal, state, and local. You're talking about like 14% of the economy. So when the federal government shuts down, if it were to shut down for a while, it makes a noticeable impact on on overall spending, growth, velocity of money, all those things. Um, but there's not going to be. I'm reading the same thing you are, which is that neither Pelosi nor Trump really want a shutdown fight. Trump doesn't want it because it is injurious to an economy that he owns. And uh, Pelosi doesn't want it. Uh, partly because, one, you know, even Bernie Sanders wins the head-to-head right now as things stand against the president. I don't think she wants uh, to change things. Uh, and I also think they're both going to get what they want. What I've just read this morning is that, you know, they'll get rid of the sequester. They'll push out the debt ceiling for two years, uh, no spending caps for two years, uh, and everybody will get what we Guess what? We're at 3.8% employment. 10 years into an economic expansion, and we're running a trillion-dollar economy. Hey, money's free. Might as well keep doing it. Like, you have to start to wonder if there isn't some kind of a kind of a moral failure here on both sides. They're, look, the Democrats have never uh, had any kind of fiscal uh, sanity. Uh, at least that's the perception, and an earned one. But the Republicans used to. That's how we got a debt ceiling uh, in the first place. But that whole thing just kind of goes away. The Republicans, when Obama in office, would want to fight on the debt ceiling. Uh, you know, the director, the current director of OMB was that guy always pushing back, uh, Mick Mulvaney, on the debt ceiling. But now, uh, when you have a Republican president, just keep spending because you want the economic numbers to look good. You want to win in the midterms. There just is a really a lack. I say it all the time, but the adults have left the room on Congress in, t- in terms of fiscal sanity. And I think one of the reasons is – uh, money's free, and you, we've just gotten into this situation where, you know, hell, Greece is, is, has got debt yielding 2 and 3%. It, it, it creates this, this sense that no matter what you do fiscally, you can't get yourself in trouble. But well, we all know that in the end, 
things change, you get into credit cycles, uh, you get into bear markets and confidence, uh, and yields start to go higher, and all of a sudden you've got too much debt. As Greenspan would say, uh, the old maestros, they used to call them, uh, you know, when the, when the tide goes out, you find out who's swimming naked. Yeah, well, I guess I guess we're all skinny dipping at this point then. But um, <laughs> another bill that was passed um, recently, we've talked about. There's a lot of these moral bills, as you know. I guess I'd refer to them as. There's no real chance of passing the Senate, and then, uh, of course, escaping yeah. veto at the president's desk. But one of the most recent ones that just happened was uh, we're planning to hike federal minimum wage to $15. Now, the CBO estimated that the bill might give 17 million U.S. workers a raise, uh, could lift uh, wages for many more, um, and it would, you know, essentially boost the income levels of many people above the poverty level. Uh, at the same time, they estimate the measure could cost 1.3 million Americans to lose their jobs. It's you know I've I've kind of, when I've looked at the debate the last few years I mean of course a lot of it's stemmed out of Seattle and and Washington and now yeah. we have seven states that have about a fifteen dollar minimum wage uh, and it hasn't been necessarily the catastrophe that a lot of people thought it would be but then you know when you look at these states they have much higher median incomes um, so you know they weren't lifting the ceiling as much whereas on a federal level you know you look at states maybe like West Virginia. Um, you know, that, that seems like it would be a much more daunting feat for, for businesses. Uh, I'm just kind of wondering, what are your thoughts on that, um, you know, in terms of minimum wage as, as, as a policy to effectively uh, push up wages? You know, I mean, think about what 15 bucks an hour is. $15 an hour at 40 hours a week is 600 bucks after your FICO and so forth, and anybody and everybody's going to pay. Um, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're at, uh, what you're at, uh, 20, you're at 1700 bucks a month. Where are you going to live for 1700 bucks a month? So, I mean, look, I do think that, uh, you know, it depends on your politics. You, everybody can find a study, uh, that is going to suit them. I tend to be of the belief that there should be $15 minimum wage laws in every case. There's going to have to be carve outs and so forth for small business and for, and for high school kids and things like that on uh, temporary jobs and so forth. But I do think it's probably good policy. I do think that overall wealth bifurcation has been going in one direction since 1979, 180, and it only accelerates. I do think that's bad for not just an economy, but for a democracy. Um, I do think that, you know, you're looking at Seattle, you've looked at this all within the context though of a strong economy in an area that's got really good demographics and therefore has good localized GDP. Um, you know, you'd like to see what the data looks like through a couple economic cycles. So I think it's good economic policy, but I also think uh, that it's something that you have to be careful with in areas where the average income is not as high and you don't want to uh, suffocate small business owners. You have carve-outs for small business owners and so forth. But uh, I do think the preponderance of data, even if I do think that it's too little data, is that it, it raises overall uh, – it actually raises uh, things like birth weights. It raises things like uh, high school graduation rates. It has positive impacts on low-income societies. 
Uh, and I do, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of data that it ultimately causes anything in terms of job losses. I mean, think about it. You know, it's the whole idea that Henry Ford used to talk about, not, not necessarily the greatest champion of socialists, but at least he believed that if you don't pay somebody enough to, to buy a Model T, who's, you know, the guys that build your Model T ought to make enough to buy it. Right. I mean, I guess I guess it's an interesting experiment. Um, like I said, you know, it's right now it's one of these moral bills that's being passed, so it's not going to tell us much in, I think, the immediate term on what our policy looks like. But maybe in maybe in two years, uh, this will be you know much larger, you know, actual legislation. So so it's always interesting to kind of look at it. Uh, in terms of the international spectrum, I mean, we got China's economy growing at the slowest pace in three decades. So at the start, you know, annual growth is around 6.2% at the second quarter. Um, not much of a reason to necessarily panic. I mean, there's been a lot of areas where, you know, they still got good investment. Um, you know, they're still very robust when it comes to things like the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, but it is quite a bit slower. Um, last year, uh, it managed to increase exports by 10%, uh, but this year they're very flat. So uh, let's just, I guess, look at the world's, you know, second largest economy and, and kind of what this means right now. Yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of times you got to, as old Donald Rumsfeld would say, you got to know what you don't know. And I think the world is kidding themselves. Economists sitting in the U.S. and in Europe are kidding themselves if they think they have a headlock on what the economic data is going to look like in Japan, I mean, I'm sorry, in China, the data itself is, I, I don't care who's, uh, the data itself is mischaracterized. I mean, you just, you look at other data, raw data, diesel use, things like that have been collapsing, electricity use. Um, if you look at trade numbers from Taiwan, uh, trade numbers from Thailand, South Korea, Japan machinery tool orders, those countries' exports to China, they're all down. There's really negative numbers all around China. Uh, they're, spent, they're doing everything they can. They are from monetary stimulus to fiscal stimulus to lowering bank reserve rates to not cracking down on shadow lending et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, in, in creating bad banks to, to hide bad debts. You know, um, I, I just, I know I don't understand it, but I also know that, you know, there's gravity in economic growth. Uh, the economic cycle hasn't been repealed just because it's China. Uh, and they are, run, they are getting super, super late in the tooth. Uh, they're running big, uh, they're running big annual deficits now. They're running bigger annual deficits uh, year over year after year. Uh, they're trying to hold money in the yuan. I mean, one of the reasons why hold money in the country, one of the reasons why one of the New York Times lead stories today is on the, the collapse in foreign direct investment from China to the U.S. because they're keeping money on shore. Uh, they're actually trying to protect the yuan. I, I do think you are going to see the yuan break higher uh, in, in the peg to the dollar. Um, you know, you'll, you'll see a move to 7273, something like that, uh, in the, in the uh, dollar MMB rate. Uh, so, and that's another thing that they're going to do to try to ease. But I think they're getting super late in the economic cycle. There's all, I mean, you talk to guys who have spent some time over there. 
there's a whole lot of roads and bridges to nowhere. There's a whole lot of infrastructure projects and a whole lot of empty buildings that don't that just just don't pass the smell test on where the hell is the ROI in that empty building and that toll road going nowhere. So I I, I just think I have no idea. I would never sit here and tell you that people don't understand China, but I do. But there's a lot of stuff that is getting negative, and at some point or another, whether it's this year or next year, uh, you're going to see a more meaningful slowdown, in my opinion. And that's one second yeah, and I, third of global GDP growth. So that's a big deal for the rest of the world. Yeah, and I think you can even see, you know, some of this risky behavior we've been talking about in terms of how much a frontier market debt they've owned. I mean, if they're holding more than the IMF and World Bank, I mean, what good are those institutions? Um, but also, you know, it just seems like pretty flagrantly reckless behavior, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, they're, they're, they're lending money to Kenya and building massive infrastructure projects. It's just where's the ROI in that? No way. No way you can, you know. Um, uh, so I, I think that they have um, – I think there's a lot of bad debt that you can't see. I want to say that uh, – and I don't remember where I got this estimate, but there's as much as $10 trillion – uh, of loans in the shadow banking system, so therefore non-regulated loans, $10 trillion. The U.S. housing market is like $30 trillion, just to put it in context. I mean, you're talking about a huge number of, of, of banks, essentially, that aren't regulated, where you really don't know what the debt and the credit uh, looks like. And, don't, and remember, we've talked about the land sales issue, that at, a lot of the he- debt is held at the municipal level. Uh, where they rely on land sales. Well, you can obviously only do that for so long, uh, and when you get real weakness, people get more weakness. And when you've overbuilt, you're just not going to have people buying land from the government in order to speculate. Uh, And that's a meaningful part of their fiscal – of of their tax base. So as that falls, your ability to fiscally stimulate, unless you want to – unless because it gets much, much more expensive because you have to take on that much more debt. Yeah, I mean, in terms of speculation, you even see it quite a bit across the states, you know, whether that be in New York City properties or, or out in kind of by the big sky ski resorts. Um, you know, you've seen a lot of that, and it's just, uh, you know, it, it's fascinating, quite frankly. Yeah, I mean, yes. you're talking about the huge big tickets that the Chinese have been spending money on that, that where they're pulling back. Right, right, exactly. A couple weeks ago, we were talking about oil. You know, we were kind of pondering uh, what we'd see to hike prices. Um, I mean, it was we kind of got somewhat of an answer uh, this past week. I mean, prices reversed earlier gains um, with Brent crude, and uh, you know, the futures began to decline. And that is in spite of the fact that Iran seems to have been picked up, and um, Hurricane Barry also disrupted did a lot of the production in the Gulf. Uh, so yeah. so those, those are kind of my thoughts on, you know, what we, what we were talking about a couple weeks ago. I mean, what, what seemed to be like a crisis in Iran then is just, uh, I think it's been escalated in a couple ways. I mean, whether yeah. it's the British tanker or now recent reports of them having um, American spies, uh, even though yeah. that doesn't seem to be getting as much headlines. Um, and at the same time, yeah. you know, oil prices have continued to either stay flat or drop a little bit. Right. You know, 
I've never heard a smart energy guy who was willing to give you his prediction on the price of oil because it really is so unknowable. Um, there are so many factors that can drive it in all directions, uh, weather being obviously one of them. Um, uh, but, um, you know, it, to, the, to the degree it can impact both supply and demand. But on, on the Iranian front, you know, it strikes, you know, it's interesting to, to look at why are the Iranians getting so aggressive right now? Uh, and my guess is, and just from what I've read, um, you, have this, you have this alliance that's been building under the Trump administration and the Netanyahu administration and um, the young prince in Saudi Arabia. Uh, and that alliance, that you know, kind of Kushner peace plan is all for the purpose of isolating Iran and the Shia world. And I, I just think that they, they have to think that they've got to at least create enough noise, create at least enough instability to make it more difficult for Trump to win re-election. Uh, I can't imagine they have, you know, some kind of other plan that would be more offensive. Uh, but I think they want to make it more difficult for Trump to isolate Trump further because I do think they're fearful of what would it look like if you really had a meaningful Israeli-American-Saudi alliance where the Saudis' influence starts to grow enormously in Lebanon, in uh, Syria. Uh, that's just something I don't think the Iranians could tolerate. So I, 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 and that's my only guess as to why the Iranians are behaving as erratically and as aggressively as they are right now. Yeah, I mean, in terms of the house that, you know, Saudi built, it's, while they're applying pressure to some extent, you know, I got to think that they'd kind of want to walk it back a little bit. I mean, you look at uh, Riyadh, you know, which was at one point, you know, 40,000 people, you know, in the kind of the turn of the 20th century. Now, you know, I mean, now it's just a booming metropolis. It was one of the fastest growing cities, cities on planet Earth, and that was due to, I think, uh, perceived stability in the Middle East in terms of the oil markets and OPEC and everything else. Um, and while while Arab companies have you know gained up on Israel in the past, you know whether it be the 67-day invasion, whether there's been civil wars, I just don't think we've seen you know the potential of a major proxy war to this magnitude for for quite some time. Um, maybe going back to you know kind of Lawrence of Arabia functionally, but um, yeah, but yeah. Yeah, no, you know, it is interesting um, um, because the way it's getting kind of lined up in a Sunni versus Shia way, uh, and and the U.S. and and the Israelis are kind of picking the Sunni side. Um, yeah, that strikes me as a little more dangerous than the world really appreciates right now, uh, because it's a, there's a that the, there's, there's there's a lot of Shia in uh, in in Iran, Iraq. Syria and the whole thing just strikes me as really, really combustible, because I just can't see that Shia world being comfortable with this uh, this kind of this this alliance that we're talked about. Yeah, yeah, especially I mean I think you'd also find other groups like the Kurds and whether it be Syria or or Iraq um, sure. can use any instability as an outlet, right? Because yeah. right now you're looking at the largest group of people without a homeland yet. So um, yeah. oil markets aside. Uh, yeah, I'm just kind of shocked at 
you know, the prices aren't larger, and I guess we'll see how, you know, that that, that develops on that front. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, we, we do have this, this, this miracle of the Permian Basin and all the oil that we are producing uh, domestically. A lot of Canadian fields are stronger and stronger, so you do tend to see less and less WTI volatility when it comes to Middle East issues, but, you know, not a problem until it re- until it really really becomes a problem. Ultimately, it's a globally fungible market, uh, and if there is um, you know if there's if there's there's real fighting, uh, there's going to be a hell of an impact on oil. Yeah, and I guess uh, to kind of end it, I suppose on the international front, and um, to kind of wrap up the podcast, you know, on July 25th, uh, not to bring it back to Europe, but um, you know, Mario Draghi will be making, you know, some more statements. Uh, right now, their quantitative easing schemes hovered in assets uh, about worth 2.6 trillion euro, um, which has been equivalent to a fifth of the euro area's GDP. What do we think he'll say on July 25th um, in in regards to more groundwork on stimulus? And and what what do you think the Europeans are trying to do right now? I mean, they're trying to find some growth somewhere, man. They're going to find it. I mean, it's become a joke. It really has become a joke. I mean, at least with Powell, he's got a tiny bit of room. He can move rates a little bit. He's got the strongest currency in the world. You know, he's got full employment. He's not looking at a whole lot of inflation. Okay, lower. He could lower it down 100 basis points. And, yeah, might even have a little bit of an impact. Not much. But, Draghi, what's he going to do? I mean, look, in the end, you're trying to get more money into the system. You're trying to create more people spending money. Um, and the last step that that money has to go through from the Federal Reserve or the ECB is the banks. And when you have – when you've gotten to zero interest rate policy and you have a flat yield curve, that means your banks are going to have a net in- – very, very little, very little net interest margin. Banks need NIM. Banks need net interest margin. They need to be able to, to lend short and lend long, borrow short and lend long with some real discrepancy, and they don't have it. So they've shot themselves in the foot. It just You get to a final end outside of dropping money out of helicopters where monetary policy just stops having an impact, and you've gotten there in Europe. So – I, you know, not to be flippant about it, but I don't care what Draghi says. I don't. I can't see why anybody interested really in the U.S. economy and U.S. markets would care. I mean, what's he going to do? Yeah, it's it's also kind of funny to see, you know, Italy, which was always been the perceived sick man of Europe, and France being more stable. I think they just passed them the other week in terms of indebtedness, total indebtedness. So, um, what used to be considered pretty stable major markets are now are now kind of falling into the same trap as a lot of the Southern European economies. But Yeah. Look, it, it, they have a very simple problem. They don't have any productivity growth, and they don't have any workforce growth. And without the two of them, you don't have any GDP growth. So they're growing at about a half a percent, about 1%. They ought to get used to it. Sounds good. Well, I think we're more or less elapsed our time. So uh, if you want to leave us with any parting words, Tim, or, um, you know, on what, what to look at next week or what you're thinking about overall, uh, please do. Um, well, we got, you know, we got GDP this week, advanced GDP this week, and we've got 
um, the FOMC next week. For advanced GDP, I think you'll be in a number, and Wall Street is basically a number between one and a half and two. I think you'll then start to see estimates for around two or even sub two in Q3. Um, and, you know, I think, and, and, and who knows on the inflation front, it'll probably stay as quiescent as it has been. And then the Fed will keep on moving. They'll probably be 25 points and keep the door open for more cuts. Whether or not that's good for equity markets or not, who knows? We're in earnings season right now. I think we'll have a down year-over-year earnings season. Um, but who knows? That's all, all of what I just said has all been pretty well telegraphed. And the market's kind of sliding along upwards. So we'll see. I don't know what would be the next thing to change that direction. Terrific. Thanks so much for your time, Tim. All right, Jerry, the best. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WealthVest. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by WealthVest. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. WealthVest does not make any representation or warranties with respect to the accuracy, applicability, fitness, or completeness of the content. WealthVest does not warrant the performance, effectiveness, or applicability of any sites listed or linked in any of the content. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.